Welcome to the 12th episode of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast. Today we are joined with, and I'm sort of fanboying, I'm very excited about this guest today, uh, Michael Hilliard, the host of the Redline podcast. Uh, the Redline podcast talks about um, you know, a lot of geopolitical issues, a lot of geopolitical issues that are a bit uh, more niche than what you might expect to find on you know, the front pages of a BBC or an Al Jazeera. Um, I really encourage all of our listeners to go and check out some of their episodes. There's definitely going to be one that sort of sorts your suits your fancy. Um, I'm going to let Michael give a bit of an introduction about himself. Um, but again, I, you know, an episode comes out every couple of weeks. Um, they're really great, and we're excited to talk to him today about uh, both the podcast himself and then some of the hot issues in geopolitics today. Um, so, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. No, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I've been a fan of your guys' work for a while as well. Um, so the Red Line is effectively a geopolitics program that we get on experts from the White House, CIA, Oxford, Harvard, uh, and ambassadors to come in and discuss one big geopolitical issue shaping the news, uh, whether it be, you know, the Russian hypersonic missile programs, or, you know, it could be uh, the Libyan civil war. Effectively, the idea is rather than going through the usual, you know, <laughs> explain a situation in, in two minutes, we like to go for an hour and a half and really go into the who, what, where, and why of these conflicts. Uh, and getting in experts who are actually making the decisions as well. So it's, yeah, if you want to hear a really deep uh, political analysis on, on one big subject that changes each fortnight, um, that's probably the place to go. You can find us on all the usual podcast places, but very excited to be here today and talk about some of the other issues. Amazing. So I think we want to get started off. I mean, you gave just a really you know helpful overview of what the podcast is about. Um, in what ways was the show and was some of the episodes that you've you know talked about on the podcast inspired or driven by your academic uh, sort of background um, as well as your professional background? So my background was as conflict journalism and writing defense papers in Eastern Europe, uh, particularly focusing on Russian defense. Um, the, so obviously the show has covered quite a lot of the former Soviet Union countries, uh, sometimes cause I'm lazy and I need, I need to do an episode where I have to do as much research. Um, so we've covered a lot of the central Asian countries like, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, um, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, we've also covered a lot of Russia, uh, as well as Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Transnistria. Uh, but we do branch out we do a lot of Asia Pacific work, uh, due to the fact that, you know, I live in Australia, the Asia Pacific is, is on everyone's mind at the moment. Uh, as well as a bit of South America, the Caribbean. Uh, but I also like really niche topics as well. So we just did a piece on the geopolitics of the rare earth trade, uh, as well as doing stuff on private military uh, contractors and how they operate. So there's always stuff to talk about, whether it be Africa or the Middle East. Uh, and I like to dive into really niche issues that quite often have a lot bigger impacts than most people would imagine. And what's the story like behind the podcast? What sort of drove you to start the Red Lion podcast? What was sort of that experience like? Um, and what was sort of your vision from it? And how has that vision changed now that you're over 40 episodes into the Red Lion podcast? So originally, I, you know, I was actually a writer for bands and whatnot. Um, and I was, I'd been writing and being a journalist for a while. And then I went to Russia on a whim with a, with a good friend of mine. Uh, and I loved my time in Russia and I met some, uh, you know, I'd been always been a fan of defense work and whatnot and, and interested in that kind of sphere of things. Um, but then I, I met with another conflict journalist over there who was at the time reporting out of, uh, Ukraine and, you know, we got along with a house on fire and I started helping him to write defense papers. Uh, and then from there, I obviously did my degree in international relations and economics. Uh, and I started writing defense papers and ghostwriting for a lot of people. So ghostwriting is effectively where, 
you know, someone from, let's say, the British House of Lords will pay you handsomely to go to Moldova and write on Moldova defense uh, and then pay you to scrub your name off it and pretend it was theirs the whole time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it pays incredibly well. And if you're young, it's not a bad way to go. So I'd been sitting in these countries being shot at and writing and, you know, doing all the nonsense stuff. Um, and then a friend of mine said, look, we should do a podcast. You've got this weird Rolodex of guys I met in bars and, and yeah, officials and whatnot, you know, from the White House and Moscow and, you know, London and whatnot. And I went, yeah, let's, let's do it. And then we did, I think, two episodes, three episodes, and then he got a job <laughs> elsewhere. Um, and at the time, the, the show was meant to be this very Australia-focused program. We were going to be doing lots of like, the Australian housing market and a few things like that, but the audience turned out to be, you know, very little Australian. So uh, we kind of pivoted, you know, I wanted to pivot anyway. I was like, look, you know, geopolitics and, and wider international focus is definitely where I feel more comfortable. Um, so we pivoted and that's why, you know, effectively once we hit episode four, it started going to like Yemen, Transnistria and uh, you know, Iraq and Iran and those kind of countries. And then I think that's where the show you know, it sits today. So it hasn't changed too much from where it started. It's just much less Australia focused, uh, which means that my sleep pattern doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's much more where I prefer. I think Australia is a small part of a bigger story. And I'll say just briefly, I think the Rare Earths episode is one of our favorites because a lot of the elections that we've covered tend to have um, sort of rare sub themes in terms of, you know, the natural resources that these countries possess. And so we've written about um, like lithium in Portugal and uranium in Niger. Um, and so we definitely found that episode very interesting. Um, and so that sort of leads into the next question, which is, you know, is there sort of a uniform way that you go about approaching um, doing research for these episodes? I know you mentioned off, off air that, you know, it sometimes takes 30 hours of research before you even start to talk to these experts. Um, mm. Yeah, from topic generation to research to guest selection, is there sort of a, mm. like a pattern there? Yeah, of course. So effectively, you know, we'll, I have a master whiteboard that sits kind of just off camera here uh, of what topics are coming up. And usually we do topics in a couple of batches. Uh, so we'll do a couple of topics at once. So usually it's one kind of time sensitive one, uh, one top, uh, there's usually one really difficult piece. So like Rare Earths took us two months to put together. It was a long piece. And there's usually one that we call a, a can piece, which is effectively it's a country or, an, or a place in the world that won't change very much. So something like Tajikistan, we're pretty certain that we can put that out. You know, obviously there's actually conflict right now, but uh, you know, you can be pretty confident that you can launch it into eight weeks and it'll be pretty much the same. Yep. Um, you know, and we usually go through things in batches. Now, when I start research for a piece, quite often I will actually start with YouTube. I'll see what the commentators have been saying, what areas people are focusing on uh, and what is out there. Uh, and then I will go then start talking to contacts I have in defense circles, think tanks, uh, governments, and start asking for white papers or getting access to white papers and effectively getting that, that spectrum of, you know, what is, you know, uh, what is the general public? What is YouTube saying? And then what are the defense community saying? And then try and meet somewhere in the middle, um, you know, being interesting enough, the defense community likes it and being, uh, you know, uh, exciting enough that the general public might be interested. Um, then obviously it's just talking to smart people, reading a lot of books. Uh, and I cannot tell you the amount of time I will, you know, book a Zoom call with some journalists in the region and have a beer with them over Zoom and 
just pick their brains on, well, if this is happening to this, why is this? And, you know, talking to smart people is effectively 90% of what I do. Um, and that's what I advise for everyone. You know, frankly, no one should ever pretend to be the expert on everything. And you guys do it as well. You guys speak to lots and lots of experts. So you know that, you know, going to the source of information is incredibly important. I'm just, what, is there a particular episode where the, the gap between what the commentators and what the defense officials was saying was like particularly stark in terms of difference? Hmm. I'm not, there's, there's the South Sudan was always interesting that the, what government and defense said was very, very different. Uh, obviously rare earths is uh, an interesting piece because what the, uh, what the contractors will tell you and what the government will tell you do different things. Private military militaries is probably the one where there's this biggest stark that the army's very against it, but you know, some bits of government are really for it. Uh, and it really kind of almost depends on where you said politically, ideologi ideologically, uh, if you to decide how you feel about private militaries. Um, obviously there is always going to be difference. And we try and encourage that to have multiple opinions on the red line. We're not an echo chamber show. So, you know, it's not unusual that the first guest and the second guest we generally agree on the on the basics, but they might have different ideologies on how problems can be solved, um, and that's that's always an interesting way to look at things. And I, I like hearing from multiple sides. And then sort of along those lines, is there an episode that sticks out to you as one of your favorites? Um, you know, as somebody like for our listeners, if somebody hasn't listened to the podcast before, is there one that you would suggest that they listen to? Hmm. Uh, I really like that rare earth piece. That took a long time and I was really happy with it. Um, I really liked our India piece was really good. Um, the Karabakh piece, the second Karabakh piece was the longest piece we've done, but I still really liked doing that one. That was really interesting for me. Um, private militaries is one that I, I was pushing for for a long time. And when we did it, it was really, I really enjoyed it. So private militaries, rare earths, um, you know, those are probably the two I'd, I'd tell people to start with uh, if, because they're not exactly country focused, but they're more wider implications. Uh, but obviously the show is designed that, you know, you can follow the show each and every week, which is great, or you can just pick the topics you like. And I know there are people who religiously listen to the show if it's an era, if it's on a former Soviet Union country, but won't listen to, let's say, a piece on the Caribbean. And that's fine as well. Uh, Guyana was was an interesting piece as well, because the first time that I had a president of a country call me a bastard. So that's uh, <laughs> that's, I could tick that off a list, I guess. That's exciting. Achievement unlocked. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, that's a nice bucket list item. I can't say that's happened to either of us yet. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Yes, um, he was. He was. He was brazen enough to say that we were lying. Um, that he didn't sign a contract with Exxon Mobil, not realizing we had a photocopy of the contract with his signature on it. <laughs> um, yeah, the Love guy in his press had, had, had a fun day with that one. Um, so yeah, that's, um, I, I would, I'd recommend, recommend for everyone to check out the rare earths episode. We'll have that linked, uh, in the description below. So you guys can check that out. Um, and now we'd actually like to ask you about some geopolitics questions as, you know, a, a big geopolitics fan and someone that talks to experts all the time. Um, in episode one of the Redline podcast back in 2019, you covered the U.S.'s war in Afghanistan. I think it was at the 19-year uh, point um, at that point. And then again, about half a year later in episode 26, uh, and you asked a very interesting question in that episode, which was after the Trump administration uh, had revealed their, their peace deal with the Taliban, and you asked whether the U.S.'s uh, risks a route from Afghanistan similar to the one that they faced in Vietnam. 
so with that sort of background, what is your take on the current situation in Afghanistan and the Biden administration's, for now, current short-term extension of the conflict into September of this year? Uh, do you worry about power vacuums leading to rise of violent non-state actors in the region? Uh, and do you expect Afghanistan will fall in a similarly swift fashion as South Vietnam fell after the U.S. Uh, withdrew their troops? I think, you know, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Biden, unfortunately. But I think the you, what you'll see is two Afghanistans. You'll see an Afghanistan in Kabul, which will be, you know, semi, semi-stable and, and pretty much like Kabul is today. And then you might see, obviously with a difference of government, uh, but then you'll see the outer areas, Khalmat and the South, which will probably like, you know, be effectively under Taliban control. And the Taliban will likely take the power reins in Afghanistan. The US, as much as they are pulling out, they're setting up bases in Central Asia and Pakistan. So you'll likely see Air Force operations still in, uh, you know, going all the time. So let's say if the, if the, uh, Taliban look like they're going to take a major city, you'll find US airplanes roll in and start, you know, absolutely pummeling them, uh, which will obviously d- deter the Taliban from making large military pushes more than they already have. The other one will be that they will leave private contractors in uh, and they will likely leave a small contingent of training stuff. Now, right now, there is only about 3,000 soldiers left in Afghanistan, um, but effectively replacing them with private military guys as well as uh, some training staff and Air Force cover uh, will likely be, it'll keep the situation somewhat contained. The other option is obviously with Air Command still operating in the region, they'll still be running bombing runs, even if they are just drone and they are kind of covert, there'll still be US operations in Afghanistan because they are terribly worried about a power vacuum. Because right now of all the tribes and different groups in Afghanistan, they all have a unified enemy, which is the United States. The moment the United States leaves, there will be a power vacuum and a bit of a struggle uh, to which is all fine if it's six Afghan groups going at it. But once one of those groups go, well, we're not winning, maybe we turn to... ISIS or one of these other bad actors uh, for arms and support and money. And again, if you if you align yourself with one of these terrorist groups, you tend to get a lot more money than if you don't. You know, a rich sheik in uh, you know in the UAE or in Oman or in Saudi Arabia is much more likely to fund a radical uh, Islamic group than they are to fund a radical Afghanistan group. Mm. So you you worry that one of the groups will take down that option and then obviously that becomes a hotbed because no money comes for free and they will have to do things on behalf of whatever government whatever group gives them money so the idea behind this is that the us officially pulls out but they'll still have their finger in the pie uh, and they'll likely still fund chuck quite a lot of money into the uh, the ghani government and whatever even if it's the taliban government they'll give a lot of money to make sure that the moderates will try and take some power and that the country doesn't completely fall apart. Uh, saying that, though, this will put hesitancy to ever get involved in Afghanistan again, and it will likely become, you know, a, a not a failed state, but getting toward that way. Um, Yemen would be probably a good example of, you know, not quite as bad as Yemen, but down that road of where it will become a problem. Uh, effectively, we we can guess we can guess what's going to happen by the fact that the Russians are moving extra battalions into Uzbekistan to make sure that the border problems don't flow over. Uh, same with the Chinese. The Chinese are starting to set up large border containment operations in the Tianjin Mountains 
and as well as in Tajikistan to worry about this, uh, the problems escalating from there. So when you speak to Chinese and Russian officials uh, from who specialize in this area, they always use this term I, I love and I use it in the, in the piece going, uh, Afghanistan is this swirling pit of doom. Um, and you want to make sure that the pit stays right where it is because it doesn't want to, you don't want it getting out to particularly for China, Western China. Uh, so you'll likely see it almost be contained and it will become Pakistan's problem to mostly deal with. Um, but the US will still run air operations, covert operations, and lots of money in there to make sure that the government doesn't completely collapse. Uh, saying that though, it's not looking good. But what was the other option? The other option is the US stays in there indefinitely and they're losing more and more ground uh, each, each year. Effectively, by the time the Trump administration was in talks with uh, you know, with the Taliban. The Taliban, when I spoke with arms dealers who I met with in Uzbekistan, they were saying that the Taliban no longer bought ammunition because they were capturing so much US and uh, coalition forces ammunition, wow. which, is a which is a terrifying point that they're taking so much ground and so much ammunition stores. The war is definitely going against the US and they either have to double down and do another troop surge, which historically has not worked, or leave and try and remove that external enemy from Afghanistan. Um, you know, this is the only thing that will hold these six groups in Afghanistan together is the United States being the enemy. The hope is that possibly you can now play the tribes off against each other and maybe divide and conquer a little bit more. Uh, will it work? It's hard to say. Uh, there's a lot of factors to go with Afghanistan and I think Pakistan will be a huge factor as well as India will be a huge factor in that soon. Um, just a, f a few follow-ups on that, because that was a really interesting answer. Um, when you say the si situation is similar to Yemen, is that is the um, Afghan government in as weak a position um, as the Yemen government is uh, against the Houthis? I mean, they're also taking a lot of territory right now um, over in Yemen. And then when you mentioned two states, is that sort of two states within Afghanistan, or could you envision uh, an, an actual fracturing uh, of the state? And then just for, for my clarification for others, like what is the limitation of roles between official US troops and private military contractors in terms of what they can do? So when I said, we'll start with the Yemen one, the government in, in Afghanistan and in Kabul currently is not particularly strong. They are supported by the US, but for instance, when Afghan forces go up against Taliban forces, there's quite a lot of defections and uh, surrenders. So quite often it'll be a case of if heavy fighting comes, they'll call in the US and the US will come save them with helicopters and inserted troops. The question now is that effectively all the, all the troops that are supporting the Ghani government will now be looking at their watches going, well, if the US aren't here and the Taliban are going to take over, will the Taliban prosecute the people who helped the Ghani government? But if I flip sides now, then I'm seen as a hero who jumps, jumps ship. Uh, and it may be a better option for them, uh, particularly historically as the Taliban has punished uh, officials from areas they've captured. Um, so there will be a huge amount of defections the moment the US leaves, which leaves the Ghani government in a very weak position. The state's question is not, I don't think it'll fracture. There'll still be in Afghanistan and it will still be the borders that it is today, but you'll find areas of control. So for instance, the Tajik areas in the North will likely be controlled by certain warlords. The Southern areas will likely be controlled by Pashtun warlords and the Western guys will likely be controlled by different warlords. Um, 
much like Yemen, effectively, they even, you know, look at the Houthi territory, all the government territory, uh, you see that there is, they're all under one flag and one banner, but there are definitely areas of control by different warlords. Uh, and we likely might see that happen in Afghanistan as well. Uh, again, this is probably not a terrible idea because that way they, they can administer themselves and they don't unite to take on Kabul. Uh, and the idea for the US government will be if you can keep Kabul stable and afloat, maybe the, maybe it seems, you know, they get to send someone to the UN and maybe it seems like Afghanistan might have their stuff together. Uh, it becomes on the same way that countries like Somalia are at the moment where Mogadishu is fairly stable uh, and they brag about the fact they're now doing passport checks. Um, you know, but the rest of the government is not nearly as stable. Uh, you know, you go out, you know, you can go to Mogadishu, have a cup of coffee and have a good time. But when you go 40 Ks outside the city, the government has no authority. So that is where we might see Afghanistan head into territory wise, where Kabul and a few larger cities um, like Rat will be under government control, but outside the cities, it will become, you know, effectively whoever is the strongest and who has the guns. Um, and that will be a fairly terrifying position for a lot of people to be in. Uh, as for the private military contractors, uh, these are effectively ex-military guys, mostly, uh, you know, special forces guys who are paid very, very handsomely. Uh, and they'll be paid to do escort missions. They'll be paid to guards at facilities, do checkpoint, uh, checkpoint work, uh, and effectively just be the blunt end of the stick. Uh, so quite often, let's say if you know, you know, you have to eliminate someone to make it a monetization friendly term, uh, effectively, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you would send in a private military contractor because then it's not the US government that does that. You know, the US government doesn't doesn't kill people randomly. They, they would they would claim anyway. Um, well, claim. You know, but this a private military contractor going in and doing that kind of has this level of separation between it. They can keep um, clean hands, you know, sort of. You can keep your hand a little bit cleaner. Yeah. And again, it won't make a difference on the ground. I mean, Afghans are going to see, a, a, you know, rather than an American flag, going to be a company flag on their arm. Um, but it will effectively allow the Americans to continue most of a lot of their operations whilst officially pulling out of the war. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking about making a difference on the ground, um, do you think that the Biden administration sort of offer to the Taliban where they'll offer sanctions relief if the Taliban continues to respect some of the human rights advances under the current uh, government? Do you think that that'll be effective? Um, yes and no. Effectively, the sanctions are an important part because you sanctions are a fantastic tool because you can push and pull as you need. You can give more, you can give more support or less support. And with the Taliban, they're going to need all the support they can get. So the Taliban will likely want to win hearts and minds in the very first few years. Uh, and that will be, you know, if a Taliban man, man walks into, the, into a village and has lots of food and power generators and cell phones and all this kind of good stuff, the populace will be much, likely, much more likely to side with them and be much happier. The US is probably the only guys who will be happy to supply all that for the Taliban then guy to then supply that. And this was actually the US strategy in 2001. Now we were effectively paying certain warlords to be very popular and give stuff away in the area. Uh, it was when we stopped doing that uh, and effectively they went, well, why do I need to be nice to the US now if they're not paying me? Uh, it's uh, sanctioned bribes is almost the way you would put it, but it effectively will allow 
if you give the, you know, let's say you have eight warlords in an area and you go, well, this is the one I think is probably the most likely to be reasonable. Uh, you give them lots of food, rice, water, sang- and, and, you know, gifts to give away. He will win the support of the locals. He'll be in charge. And that's a guy you can deal with. Uh, and that becomes a lot cheaper in the long run than going and fighting uh, because, you know, an everyone Abrams tank is what 1.4 million, which is a, which is a lot of rice <laughs> mm-hmm. or $2 trillion. Um, that's... Or $2 trillion. It's a lot of food and, and support. So the idea is to pick favorites with it. Uh, and effectively, once the population gets used to these gifts, so let's say the village knows, hey, every Tuesday there'll be a truck rocking up with food and supplies uh, from my fantastic warlord. The moment you say, well, we're pulling that support, that warlord within then, you know, will either have to behave themselves to get it again, or they'll have to go, you know, fight against you and get it from somewhere else. The idea with it is kind of sound. I think it probably a little bit too late. They probably should have just kept with this this plan back in 2001, but obviously, you know, hindsight. So a different strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it does it, like sanctions again, like North Korea effectively uses the same thing. Like the U S gives, uh, food and support to the UN and the UN gives food and support to North Korea. Uh, and the U S can push and pull that as they want. So quite often when North Korea launches a couple of, uh, missile tests, the U S will say, Hey, look, we'll increase your food supply by 10%. Uh, if you stop the tests and North Korea agrees, they get their support through the UN and they stop the tests. Uh, what it does though, is it sets a, a bad precedent that now North Korea, you know, whenever they need extra food and support, they simply just start doing tests and you might see the Taliban take the same approach. And every time, you know, that they haven't got enough money from the U S or support from the U S they'll blow up an embassy. They'll, you know, attack a marketplace. They'll do something and say, well, you know, if we had 10% more money coming into me personally, this could probably stop. Um, I mean, this option did work for the Russians in Chechnya. Uh, so I think the U.S. are hoping the same thing might happen here. And so we've mentioned quite a bit that, you know, this this deadline to withdraw troops from Afghanistan has gotten pushed back to September. Um, on a platform that we interact with quite often, Metaculus, the community median forecast for the likelihood that that actually happens is 50%. So basically a coin toss. Um, mm. what, what, what do you think about this sort of pushback deadline, extended deadline? Do you think um, that we'll actually be able to withdraw troops by then, or do you think there's going to be further extensions? Um, yeah, what 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 would your forecast be for that question about the September deadline? I would imagine it's possible. Um, you know, I wouldn't be It would be, you know, there won't be a big difference between September and October. Um, maybe October, and effectively, but the points won politically and the narrative politically that will come from either pulling out on September 11th or pulling out on October 9th, which was the anniversary of the invasion, uh, will be quite good. Effectively, it's a, you know, there's a nice line in the sand and you can put a nice circle around it and go, we were here for 20 years and I got us out of it, which is what Biden will say. Uh, you know, they're already setting up. Uh, so there's been a lot of talks um, with between the US State Department and guys like Uzbekistan uh, to house more US bases, uh, as well as Tajikistan and as well as Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and, but Uzbekistan is the very likely one to take most of the US operations. Uh, Pakistan, you'll find that, you know, there was just a couple, there's been a lot of high-end meetings between the governments in Islamabad and Washington. So you'll find a lot of drone operations will continue to operate out of Pakistan. So they're setting up for the air command to be ready to go. 
Um, as for PMCs, we're watching more private military rock in. Uh, so a lot of the shares on some of the private military companies we're, we're watching closely because as soon as that contract gets announced, we know their share price will jump. So even if even if privately it's announced to their staff, you'll watch the share price jump uh, because obviously, uh, yeah, uh, because a lot of people will uh, be sort of buying extra stock knowing that it's going to be jumping up because I don't know if you guys know this, but private military contractors aren't completely ethical at all times but we won't surprise, go into that surprise 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 you can um, go listen to the red line podcast about Prime <laughs> to hear more about that. um so effectively there are a lot of signs that it is likely that he will be able to pull out unless something dramatic happens now the the idea is that you know by september october things begin to quiet down anyway so afghanistan much like a lot of countries in the world kind of has seasons of fighting because in the summer it's it's able to fight but in the winter it gets cold people tend to retreat back home and you'll find a lot of during that area of of times september october a lot of farmers will return home to harvest crops and return home to you know get stuff sorted so you'll find there will be a lot of great footage of soldiers you know returning back to their farms which would have happened anyway but it'll be good narrative the story's right there it'll be very politically popular um, I can see it. I, I, if I were a betting man, I'd say I'd give it about a 70, 30 chance. It does happen in, in September uh, and at latest October 9th, because that would be a really nice uh, you know, narrative structure to bring it back exactly on the 20 year mark. Well, I don't think we'll see the, you know, the running across the bridge that the Soviets had. Um, it'll be a lot of, you know, handover ceremonies where they'll give a sword to some Afghan national guard guy. Um, But yes, I can see it probably happening. So if it's 70% by September, what is it by October? Uh, No, I'd say 70%. So I'd say say it's 50% by September, 20% uh, 20 by October, 30, uh, another 20% by the end of the year and 10% that it never happens. uh, If I were to put some numbers on it. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it would have to incredibly destabilize for it to happen. And the Taliban aren't that dumb. They know that they've, the, they can see the end ball game right now. You know, the Taliban will likely be actually telling their commanders to shut up and lay low because if everything seems fine, the U S can pull out quietly. And now everyone's watching, watching the clock. And the very famous line from the Afghans is you have the soldiers, but we have the time. Uh, and just waiting it out and being quiet for the next couple of months will allow the Biden administration to leave and the Afghans will be able to do what they want to do. Well, Andrew, I think we got ourselves a easy next Metaculous Monday forecast with, uh, <laughs> with that, with that right. 70. Did all our work for yeah. us. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now switching um, uh, topics to another region, which you have a lot of expertise in, which is Eastern Europe, uh, and more mm-hmm. specifically looking at the situation in the Donbass um region um sort of largely thinking about you know the increased fighting that has happened since the start of this year uh between uh russian and ukrainian forces in in the donbass region and 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 pro-russian separatists um but focusing sort of more specifically on the recent massive russian troop buildup and then since troop withdrawal um what is your take on the situation in the region and sort of what do you believe Putin's motives were for the massive buildup uh, on the border earlier last month? So Putin's motives are, you know, quite a few fold. There's lots of different objectives here. So for one, 
Biden, the Biden administration, particularly Blinken, has been saying that they're going to be very, very focused on the Asia Pacific during Biden's term. So this is a Putin kind of like, hey, pay attention to me. I'm still here. I'm important still. Um, because obviously that's still a big thing. Putin wants to be on the front of everyone's mind because if America is you know, pushing against Russia, it will prove to guys like Syria and some of these African nations that Russia is still a viable alternative to America. Russia does not want to be in obscurity because then they lose their influence in, in a lot of these countries they're trying to make developments in. The idea, you know, the timing is, is normal. So what Russia, what Ukraine goes through is called Rasputitsa, which is effectively where the whole country turns to mud. So you find, you know, what's really interesting, I watch a YouTube channel uh, that's World War II week by week, and all the tank operations are just kicking off in Ukraine, you know, at the moment as well, because it's that time of year. Um, because effectively in winter, the ground is hard enough that it freezes up that you can run tanks. In summer, it's hard enough, you can run tanks, but in the middle, it kind of gets really muddy and disgusting. So you're stuck to the main roads, uh, which makes operations really hard to do any flanking moves. So tank operations and large operations happen about this time of year as expected. Uh, as for Putin, this is, there are a couple of extra bonus operations here. So one, he wants to make sure that Ukraine can never join NATO because that would be devastating to Russia. Um, Russia has effectively this mentality and probably deserved between Napoleon and Hitler that the, they do not want to be invaded or surrounded. And the Russian heartland is very flat. It's why Hitler's tanks got quickly through it so quickly. You know, right now, the Russians would love to anchor themselves and only have to defend that bit between, you know, effectively northern Poland and southern Belarus. But if Ukraine were to fall and NATO troops were to sit in Ukraine, they'd have to defend the entire border of Ukraine as well, uh, which would stretch the Russian forces so incredibly thin. And frankly, no one wants to do that. Now, if you have a border dispute, um, you cannot join NATO because effectively it would put the US, if Ukraine was to join NATO tomorrow, it puts the US in a difficult position to A, trigger Article 5, and then the US is at war with Russia. And no one wants that. That'd be horrifying. B, don't trigger Article 5 and prove to your Eastern partners that there is, because Article 5 in the NATO Charter says that if any country is attacked, all countries will respond. And if you don't trigger Article 5, you're proving to partners in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, maybe the US won't come to your aid. Maybe there is a bit of a gray zone in this issue. And you don't want to put, you don't want to, you know, have to play your hand of cards on that either. So this is why Russia has breakaway states in, you know, they have Abkhazia in South Ossetia and Georgia. They have Transnistria and Moldova. Uh, they have Nagorno-Karabakh in uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And they have Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea in Ukraine. Uh, and if Belarus was to pull away, you'd likely see a breakaway state all of a sudden open up there as well. So this is a very standard Russian operating procedure. Now, the other important factor to realize is Nord Stream 4. So right now, a lot of the Russian gas pipelines go from, you know, the Russian gas fields and they go through Ukraine into Poland and the rest of the European market. But obviously that is not ideal for Russia because Ukraine takes royalties, Europe takes royalties, you know, it's just the way of the world. Russia is effectively putting this pipeline from St. Petersburg in the north, right through the Baltic Sea into the North German coast called Nord Stream 4. But it requires a lot more private investment than Russia probably has the capital to do. It will be, you know, it will still be uh, chaired by Roshneft and uh, Bashneft and, and Gazprom, but it will require a lot more private investment. Now, to an investor, if you're looking at putting money into Ukrainian gas pipelines, you might be looking at it and going, well, long term, maybe there'll be a war. 
why don't we invest in Nord Stream 4 where it's in the Baltic, no one's going to invade it. No one can blow the Baltic up. And that is a good incentive. And in Russia, we're running every pamphlet for private investment going, you know, put your money in Nord Stream 4. Yeah, you've got a lovely picture there, which really helps. Now, the 14,000 troops were that were inserted into the region were pretty normal operating exercises. So Russia runs exercises all at all times of the year, effectively going and testing logistics on officers, uh, testing how fast they can move stuff. You know, they do games every year where they see how fast they can get to Vladivostok, uh, which is in the Far East. So none of this is particularly unusual. And there are a few signs that we would be looking for if Russia was to be heading to war. So we talked about share price earlier, and that's an important one. If Russia was to be in, uh, you know, really going to war with Ukraine, we would see companies like Almazalti, uh, who's a very large Russian defense contractor, their share price would be shooting up because they would be starting to ramp up production of ammunition, artillery shells, you know, all that kind of stuff that they're really good at, uh, and as well as repair costs for armored vehicles and tanks. That share price hasn't had a huge jump. Uh, so we know that the executives of that company aren't having huge orders above what it was expected. So business as usual. The, quite often Russia enters operations, uh, even when we entered the Georgian operation, all leave passes were cancelled for mid to, uh, mid to high level offices, uh, particularly mid level offices. Uh, none of that's happened yet. Uh, so that's a good opera. That's a good sign. Um, you know, we haven't seen any requisition of civilian trains either, uh, which is quite a common operation for Russian logistics. If they think they're going to enter into a larger war, they'll start uh, taking carriages and they'll start taking uh, train, train beds uh, in preparation for moving a lot of troops and operation, uh, operational equipment around. None of that's happened as yet. So this is more likely going to be a, a political operation to show Biden and see where Biden's response will be, to see if Biden is taking Ukraine as seriously as he probably should. B, a look to the gas investors to say, go to, go to Nord Stream forward, don't worry about Ukraine. C, it gives training and operate training for soldiers. I mean, frankly, you've got to train all your mid-level officers to move logistics around anyway. Why not do it in, in the Donbass? Uh, you know, these are the main operations here. Nothing too out of the ordinary. I don't, there'll be some scattered fighting, um, but from talking with guys who've been, I've been to Ukraine a couple of times and talking with guys that operate in that area, you know, when it's non-fighting season, the the artillery becomes it's such a minutia, it's such a routine, uh, effectively that you know troops can go up. Oh, it's twelve oh eight. Okay, four Russian shells are about to fall. Cool, fantastic. Back to lunch. Um, you know, it just gets in a routine, and as well as the fact that the troops in there are putting pressure on Vladimir Zelensky, who currently is doing a lot of gas deals with Ukraine with Russia. Uh, who Vladimir Zelensky is the president of Ukraine and having a lot of state elections as well coming up. Uh, this is a great lever that Putin can go, hey, give me a better deal on what I want in Ukraine or I'm going to put in another, you know, another, we'll make another harsh operation and we'll push towards Mariupol. Um, you know, and Vladimir doesn't want that. No one wants that. So he's likely to play more ball with Putin than, you know, than would be expected. And so it's a multifaceted operation. Um, and then just real quick on the Nord Stream aspect, what do you make of um, the German Green Party um, saying that if they were to get into power, they would consider canceling that project? Do you, do you have a sense of how that would affect things in the region? I mean, 
obviously the elections in Germany haven't started yet, but I think there was a poll recently where that at least had the Green Party leading. So it's certainly a possibility that they could get in into power and pot- potentially cancel it. The one, Green Party won't, won't, won't win. Um, mm-hmm. It would be an incredible shock for them to win. Um, you know, we're likely to see a more lean to the right than the left in the next German election. So the Green Party can say a lot when they have they don't have the burden of actually having to do anything. Um, the as much as they you know they may talk about cancelling it, frankly, the German market is like eighty percent to eighty six something like that percent reliant on Russian gas. Um, if the pipeline doesn't go through, the Russians will stop the gas. And it'll be a long, cold winter for Germany. And they won't blame, you know, the average German citizen won't blame Putin. They'll blame the government in Berlin. Uh, and they, everyone knows that. Um, so Russia, you know, it's very unlikely this pipeline is going to be uh, cancelled. And even if it was, they would just divert it to Poland and then Poland would sell the gas to Germany. It's not, you know, not the end of the world. And I'm sure that even if the Green Party was to miraculously pull off an election win, that they would literally just put a slight extension on it, jumping in on just over the border into Poland. And then Poland sells it and they go, we don't get our gas from Russia. We get it from Poland. Completely different. Um, Germany needs gas. This is a, this is the quickest way to get gas to Germany. And that's kind of where it's going to be at. Um, but, you know, if the Green Party runs on this as a major platform policy, then the other parties, particularly uh, even the SDP, the Christian Democrats, as well as, uh, AFD will run on a, this will cost jobs and make your gas more expensive, which is probably true. Um, yeah, again, it's, I, I've been advocating for years for, uh, for Germany to get off the uh, Russian defense or Russian gas uh, you know, dependency, but frankly, they need gas. And the only other option is to ship it in from the Gulf states, which would be way, 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 way more expensive. Um, and also, you know, and, riskier, Suez, it can now, and yeah. riskier, it seems, as we just saw from the Suez. Um, so this seems like a, a no-brainer for anyone in the German gas markets. Uh, it also doesn't help that Rosneft, uh, their CEO, is currently an ex-German chancellor. So the relationships are definitely already there. I hope all of our listeners are taking notes. I mean, what you're talking about with respect to, you know, it's like some of the signals that you're looking at if Russia were actually intending to go to war with Ukraine. A lot of those signals are things that Clay and I missed when we were, you know, forecasting this question. So it's really interesting to hear. Um, you know, sort of going off what you were just saying, where do you see the situation with Russia and Ukraine going from here? Do you think the conflict will sort of go back in sort of the seasonal um, dynamic as you're describing? going back to a frozen conflict? Or do you think it will continue to escalate? Um, you know, Clay and I had forecast that there's a 20% chance um, that the Ukrainian military will suffer 250 deaths or more in any given month uh, before October, uh, per the Metaculous question, as you can see up uh, on the screen. Yeah, do you think that things will get worse from here? Or do you think uh, Russia sort of made their stand and Ukraine understands and now they'll go back to somewhat dormancy? It'll, just, it'll be an occasional flare-up. It'll be what we're seeing in Karabakh, apart from that last big push where uh, right. Azerbaijan made the big moves. It'll be occasional flare-ups. There'll be deaths on both sides, and it'll escalate or de-escalate as Putin sees fit. Uh, the important bit is why would Putin want to change the game? He's got everything he wants out of this conflict. He's got, you know, he's got the breakaway republics, so uh, Ukraine can never join NATO. He's got the pressure point that he wants for Vladimir Zelensky. He's got the access points for the gas pipelines from Russia. 
Um, why would he want to change any situation? You know, he may, you know, train some new guys by putting a slight operation and pushing out from a town, but with effectively all the, most of the, most of the sort of where the border is now is full of Ukrainians who will make it much harder for the Russians to give in. And if the Russians make a big push, let's say push for the Donbass or push for the, um, push the Dnieper river, it's just going to encourage other countries to get involved and make it much more expensive for Russia. And as much as Russia has all this army and nuclear weapons and they're very powerful, their GDP is the size of Australia's. Like, and we're not a major power. You know, we can we can shake our fist at Fiji all we want, but we're not a major power. Um, the Russians are fairly, you know, this is the best position they could possibly hope for. So why would they want to change the board? Uh, yeah. I don't see it going too far escalating. There'll be fighting and there'll be shells and there'll be deaths, unfortunately, but Russia's happy with how the board's set at the moment. So then I'm guessing then our 20% likelihood you would say is probably too high. No, I, I think that's like the, that's why I nodded. The number is probably fine because they can, they can sparks shoot a bunch happen. of sparks happen. There'll be, you know, particularly if Russia, you know, domestically wants to you know, win some favor, they might make a slight push and they'll have some fighting and there'll be some great footage of brave Russian soldiers taking on these Ukrainian devils. Um, you know, there may be some little bits of fighting here and there, as we saw with whenever Azerbaijan and Armenia clashed on their borders, it would be, you know, three, four days of semi-intense fighting, 200 people die and, and everyone goes home. Um, again, it's expensive to run large scale operations. And I don't think Russia has the money to really run those. Um, not for no reason, you know, they're much more focused in other areas of the world, but you know, there will be deaths. Uh, there will be shells. There will be fighting, but no one's going to be, you know, making objectives like Maria Polo or Karakov. And so then going on to our third sort of geopolitical topic and third and last of the episode, um, we wanted to talk about the Olympic boycott or potential Olympic boycott that's being threatened for 2022. Um, you know, there's a question on Metaculus again asking whether uh, most of the Five Eyes and um, and the Quad would boycott the Olympics in 2022, the Winter Olympics. We had forecast a 23% likelihood of a boycott by the U.S. plus allies. Um, do you think that the like that the U.S. will actually boycott the Olympics in 2022, or do you think it's more of a tool that they're using um, to sort of get concessions from China with respect to human rights, etc.? I think it's more of a tool. I think you know the framework we look at this is the boycott of the Soviet Olympics in the 80s. But between the 80s and now, there is so much more money and advertising tied into the Olympic Games. Um, there is a, you know, Coca-Cola, Budweiser, all your big brands are now very tied into the Olympic Games. Right. And all these brands know that if the US was to pull out, that would be devastating to their markets. So for instance, no one at Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola prints their stuff well in advance. It's why there are gazillions of cups out there at the moment with, you know, Tokyo 2020 written on the side of the cup, both for McDonald's or anywhere. Um, they would be very, very hesitant to pull out because it would cost them a lot of uh, frustration from companies like Coca-Cola, which is very important in Georgia, uh, and a few other swing states. So Pennsylvania, there'll be a bunch of jobs in there. Uh, and Coca-Cola is smart enough to put a lot of their plants in these swing states, knowing that if any hurt came to them, it would be hurting in the jobs in areas that the US desperately need. The If the US did, I think you I read your predictions. I think, yes, Australia would likely boycott as well. Australia is you know, the, the yapping dog to the US and we usually follow you guys wherever you go. 
So yeah, New, New Zealand. UK. Yeah, I think the UK might not, um, particularly with the conservative government in where it is at the moment. Um, but it, I don't think we'll boycott the Olympics. I think there'll be a lot of threat of it. Um, but there is so much money involved uh, in these Olympic Games uh, for advertisers, for TV rights, for spending, for all this kind of stuff. I don't think it'll it'll happen, but I could be wrong. Again, it's it's far enough out that you know it could it could change. You know, we don't know what, for instance, what the twenty twenty four elections will do. And if let's say it's President Tom Cotton who's running, who is President of the United States, that's much more likely. Actually, I think he probably would boycott the Olympics. If it's President Sean Hannity, yep, he would either boycott the Olympics or make it a Fox exclusive. Um, you know, one of the two. So again, it's we're kind of at a point where if the cards were set on the table as they are today, no. If but we don't know what cards are coming up, uh, and particularly with how wild the U.S. foreign policy is flipping between parties at the moment. You know, it used to be kind of like Democrat Republican, Democrat Republican, but now it's like Democrat Republican, Democrat Republican. You know that it's very hard to predict any more than about four years ahead at the moment. Um, you know, again. It, 2024 elections will probably be the decider on what happens here. Uh, but at this time, I'd imagine there's enough money and enough jobs in important states such as Georgia that they probably will go ahead with it. Um, following up on that, first of all, actually, uh, a friend of the show and a super forecaster, Regina Joseph, uh, she told mm -hmm. us one signal to be looking out for is the ad buying spots. Um, I believe mm -hmm. she said on NBC because I think they do the Olympics in the U.S., um, to yep. see if those are, are going down or changing, because that might be indicative of a greater chance um, of there being an Olympic boycott, which ties into what you were saying right there. Mm. Um, I was just wondering a few things. So we talked about like an, a full-on boycott, but what about a diplomatic boycott, where the athletes still go, but perhaps they compete either independently or there is just like no delegation with them so all the politicians stay home and they're boycotting the olympics but to for you know the good of the athletes they you know they they still let them comp compete could that be more likely um and then you also sort of you slid in there that you said australia would likely follow the u.s into a boycott but not new zealand and that's something that we had uh, uh said in our forecast too and as someone who's you know very close geographically to New Zealand, um, why do you think that there's this sort of difference, uh, seemingly largely when it comes to China policy between Australia and New Zealand? So obviously the difference comes from the governments in those two, in those two countries. New Zealand's government is currently Labour, uh, and they're much more friendly international relations wise. So Labour in New Zealand is is much more let's work with partners and try and curb. So they have called out what's happening in the west of China. And again, I won't say the words so we can not get demonetized yet, but they're not there. They've called it out, but they're not going to stamp their foot and declare war because effectively New Zealand defense force is not ready for a war with China. Um, they're also not going to draw the ire of, of China as heavily as Australia will. Um, it's, they don't send that many competitors. Now, if the US were to go with what Russia does, so Russia right now, can't compete in the Olympics because of their doping scandals. So they send a delegation that is just Russian citizens who happen to be there at the time. Uh, but viewing viewership in Russia has dramatically decreased for Olympics because of this. Um, and the US will be looking at those stats and going, well, if we're expecting viewership to go from here to here for the difference between wearing a USA jersey or a I happen to live in Milwaukee jersey, um, you know, 
they advertisers will also look at it and go, well, we're going to spend, if it's that, we're not going to spend nearly as much. Uh, and there are so many companies, particularly in the media, uh, who will need the money. So, you know, they will be encouraging lawmakers both for, you know, jobs in, in uh, advertising and marketing, as well as TV broadcasters going, we've got to keep this thing going. Um, there's, there's too much money tied into the Olympics these days. Uh, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't think it's a particularly good thing, but it is what it is. Um, London, I can't see going for it, but again, it's so far out that it's hard to make, it gets a bit murky once you get past the sort of three-year mark. Um, with the current Tory government, they probably would allow it to go and they just wave the flag and say, well, it's not about China. It's about us proving to the Chinese that we're still better than them. Um, you know, of something of that variety, they go for it. America maybe, but again, we watched how much the ratings dropped during the, so the Moscow Olympics. No one want, the advertisers would not want to see that again. No, they definitely wouldn't. Um, what do you think the implications uh, and ramifications of the boycott would be? Like if, right, ignoring the, 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 the probability of it happening, if a majority of the Five Eyes and the Quad were to boycott the 20, uh, 22 Olympics in Beijing, would that... Is that sort of indicating the start of a cold war or would that in some way in sort of actually reveal that we've already been in one? Could it be something else? And sort of what would the ramifications be? Well, I'd argue we're almost in a cold war as is. And I don't think like the Moscow Olympics, the pullout didn't achieve anything. It didn't end the war in Afghanistan. It didn't end the cold war. It was just the Soviets did really, really well in those Olympics. That was about the only ramification that came from it. It was a frankly very toothless it was a way of, you know, the midterms were coming up at the time. It was a way of just, you know, proving they're tough on communism. Um, will it? Will China give up, you know, the importance of the West of the country because, you know, US people aren't coming over to lift weights above their head? No. They don't care that much about it. Um, you know, as much as the Olympics are an important event and they are, you know, a fantastic event, there's no way that China is going to give up crucial defense uh, parameters and crucial national interests to have a couple of Americans come over to compete in sport. Um, you know, again, I think Americans, the Americans know this as well, that they've seen how ineffective the boycott was of the Moscow games. A boycott of the Chinese games will be political domestic theater, not international theater. Uh, it'll be designed to prove to, you know, some of the states that we have a tough on China policy uh, without actually having to be really tough on China that would hurt you economically. Because, you know, if you were really going to be tough on China, you start putting economic sanctions and a few other things, but they would, doing that would drastically hurt the US economy because no one else has the manufacturing capabilities that China does at the moment. Um, so no, I, I don't think it would actually achieve anything. Uh, and that's kind of the point that it's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cons for not that many pros. I mean, you prove domestically, something but that's about it so that was really fascinating um actually all of those answers were i feel like i learned a ton and i'd love to just as you did like as you said offline just grab a beer and pick your brain about some more geopolitical issues because that was really we'd, fascinating um we'd love to but just going into our last topic for the podcast um you know as you know at global guessing something that we do very often is make forecasts about different um events and we were wondering for you, do you make quantified forecasts as part of your past academic roles or even as part of the podcast? 
Um, and what applications do you see for those sort of analytic, analytical methods in the geopolitical space? Do you feel like they're useful or do you feel like uh, it can be a bit of snake oil sometimes from like from what you've seen? And also real quick, oh, part mm -hmm. of what we do, Andrew, I mean, it is, you know, in our <laughs> title. <laughs> <what we> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big part of what you do. Um, the full thing. Yeah. <laughs> It's like a part of what the red line is, is geopolitics. Um, <laughs> so yes, analytical work and prediction work is incredibly important. And it gives you, because it gives you hard data to play with. And that's the trouble with, with anything, you know, uh, geopolitics wise is a lot of it's kind of soft science. It's a lot of, well, this country would probably react to this country and this country would probably do this. But by putting it in, in terms of, you know, if a boycott of the Olympics happens, Coke will lose this much. It will hurt jobs in Georgia by this much actually gives a lot of lawmakers and a lot of decision makers much easier data to play with um, because it takes opinion out of things and goes into the territory of this is what will happen. Uh, and I think what you guys are doing is incredible because that's what it does. It takes it into quantifiable, uh, quantifiable measures. And there are lots of, you know, algorithms will be able to work this out <laughs> in the future, but you know, there are a lot of, you know, if Russia was to go into, effectively, when you go into defense, you go into writing defense papers, you effectively put, you know, best case, uh, good case, most likely case, bad case, worst case. And by laying out your percentages, you kind of are doing that. You're laying out, you know, when you're briefing a minister on, you know, should we nuke Nauru? It would be, here's what the likely outcome would be based on the percentages of what we've seen from previous trends. Here is best case, here is worst case. It's probably, we think it's gonna be somewhere around here with about an 80% chance of success. Um, this is what you guys are doing and it's why it's fantastic. It's quantifiable and as someone who likes data and numbers and, and hard lines in the sand, I'm a big fan. And you can also track, you know, as well, mm. if you put down a number on it, then it's, you know, I think the real strong is putting down that number. Cause if you say like very likely that most times if there's not a number, you could be like, well, I really meant by very likely was a 60% chance. So really it's fine. Whereas if you yeah. have a number, you can't, you, 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 you can't wiggle out once you have something on the, on the zero mm. to a hundred scale, um, which yeah. speaking of the zero to 100 scale brings really us quickly, I have one more question. Um, I mean, you know, what you were just describing just now about looking at, you know, like the previous cases and using that to inform, um, you know, the way that you think about what might happen in the future it seems very similar to a lot of the sort of science, more scientific techniques that we use of base rates and of, um, you know, teaming and all these things that we've seen that can de like decrease prior scores, um, and, you know, make more accurate forecasts. Have you come across any of like Philip Tetlock's work or have you read Super Forecasting or are you familiar with that sort of whole um, area of, of quantified forecasting at all? Or is that just hmm. something that's come naturally to you and your partners as you've done your work in, in the defense sector? No, no, super forecasting is a real thing. Um, and it's effectively taking good educated bets. Um, again, you can never be sure of anything because again, it comes down to, we can predict all sorts of stuff, but a president Donald Trump comes along or a president Sean Hannity comes along, you know, all your things go out the window. Um, you know, it's, it's the longer you, the, the more you, you guess out, the more difficult it gets, but you can usually predict fairly well using data on previous decisions made, previous objectives made, uh, and you know previous actions done on what the likelihood of things will be to happen. So we know, you know, for the same reason that most of us in the defense industry can pretty comfortably predict 
that Russia was not going to invade Ukraine. And as I went through the stuff with you, most of it was on precedence. I mean, we started looking at data from the invasions of Chechnya, the invasions of uh, Georgia, um, and those kind of guys, and we're not seeing the same trends. Uh, and that's, you know, you look for trends and patterns. Um, yeah. And effectively, that's what you guys are doing. And it's a scientific way of looking at it rather than I, I done thunk it. Um, is not doesn't really fly doesn't cut the brain, in, in, in papers so yeah trends economics uh and logistics is probably the most important thing because you can you know you can try and hide your wanting to go to war but you can't hide a bunch of trains and ammunition moving around a country just as easily right well unfortunately i don't have as great of a transition as i was just <laughs> on a roll on but that's okay because the, this now brings us to the last segment of our show, which is the rapid fire round. Um, we have four questions, um, which you have to make a quantified forecast about. Um, and one of these, well, actually two of, two of the forecasts we've sort of touched on a little bit today, but you have a chance to sort of reformulate them and give a precise number. Uh, mm -hmm. So the first question is, what is the likelihood that Russia annexes territory in Eastern Europe by 2026? And an ad additional territory, obviously. I'd say it's about 30, 70. Um, maybe, no, 2080. You know, it, it, actually moving the territory is, like moving the borders is a big no-no these days. No one does it. It will, you know, effectively elicit a response from the West. If Russia was to annex, let's say, uh, Donbass and Luhansk, they don't get the advantage of, of keeping Ukraine out of NATO. And at the same time, they already have virtual control of those areas anyway. Why would you bother moving the border? Um, the exception to the rule would be maybe Galicia uh, or Transnistria, who actually have referendums that they would want to join Russia um, because they are they are breakaway states of uh, in Ukraine for Galicia and Transnistria for Moldova. But it would be the moment you do that, it would elicit the West to have to respond in some way. And at the point where, particularly in Transnistria, all this stuff is done through the Russian foreign ministry, they get all their power, you know, everything comes from Russia. What does Russia stand to gain from changing where the board is set at the moment? Um, I, I know they do the Islami tactics, but again, to move out of the Russian Federation uh, would likely elicit a Western response, uh, whether that be heavier sanctions or... Um, you know, or, or military response. Crimea was a different story because it's such a vital importance to Russia due to the fact that it houses the Black Sea ports uh, and uh, warm water ports has been on, you know, Russia's to-do list since Peter the Great. Um, they can't afford, they could not afford to lose Crimea. So that was about the only one I can see that is incredibly important to the Russian defense sphere. You know, if we look at where their borders are to push into Finland, no point. To push into the Baltics would definitely elicit a US response. To push into Belarus, they view that as domestic anyway. To push into Poland starts World War Three. To push into Ukraine, they've already got what they want out of that. Pushing Moldova, it would be a pain in the ass logistically, and at the same time, they've already got what they want. Transnistria has all the power stations and has full control of Kishinev in, uh, uh, on a political level. Uh, they can push and pull as they need in Kishinev. Uh, you know, with uh, Georgia, they've got what they want out of Georgia. Georgia can't move without you can't join NATO. Azerbaijan is already a friend of Russia. Uh, Armenia is already a friend of Russia's and Central Asia is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, but, you know, hell, if they want to move the border, uh, you know, a couple of feet in on Kazakhstan, it's just desert on the border anyway. No one's really going to lose their mind over it. 
Um, they wouldn't want to annoy partners in Central Asia either. I mean, you could argue that the when the South Ossetians, uh, which is effectively a breakaway state in Georgia, they move the border all the time. You know, it's it's a very common operation for the farmers to pick up the barbed wire fence that is the border. It happened with France and, and Belgium recently. I think a farmer Georgia. accidentally did that. <laughs> yeah, farmer accidentally accidentally did that, but they actually do this properly. Yeah. Um, there are farmers that joke that they lost entire paddocks overnight because the Russians moved the border. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't see I, I don't see what Russia would stand to gain from moving the official borders. Uh, when they can already just have complete influence over areas. Uh, and then just changing topics slightly, um, what do you think there's likelihood that we discover evidence of alien life by 2030? And this can be single cell organisms all the way to complex uh, aliens. UFOs in of themselves is not evidence. There has to be evidence of someone inside the UFOs or controlling the UFOs. So, um, yeah. 2080 um you know we're not putting as much into space technology as we probably should um we're not likely to find anything on the moon we're not likely to find anything uh we might find what you know there's water on mars but we're not there can be evidence of past life sorry, much maybe well. a single maybe some single cell organisms um you'd be more likely to find let's say some of the moons of jupiter you might find some single cell stuff out there um but we just aren't you know, we're not putting as much money into space to go to the likely areas that would have, you know, life would be expensive and time consuming and would take years and years and years to get there. Like, you know, Voyager, the Voyager probes are just making out of the solar system now and they were launched in the Nixon administration. Um, and Nixon famously, when NASA came to him and said, we have this shot at getting this, you know, using this slinging around Venus and going past Mars and Jupiter and slinging around a couple of moons in Saturn for this exact mathematical trajectory to get to the edge of the solar system. Uh, and he went, well, if we miss it now, and Nixon asked, when was the last time this, the planets lined up like this? And they went, well, George Washington was present the last time it did. You know, there are very few opportunities where everything lines up where you can sling off because effectively it's very hard to send data that, that way. So you effectively have to pre-mathematically work out that at you know day 6,402, hour seven, minute 42, second 81 or second 21, uh, launch two seconds of thruster. And it goes, and that's it. You, you know, everything has to line up so perfectly to make it work to get to that area of the area of the universe. You know, it would be very unlikely that that happens in the next seven years. And that we would be putting that much money into it. We're much more focused on Mars and the moon at the moment. Mars, maybe you might find single cell life near the poles. But again, it's pretty hard to find evidence considering we're only drilling, you know, drilling into small bits of the planet. I mean, it would be like picking a random spot in Canada and drilling there and going, can we find life on Earth? If you picked of the you know like the big areas of the world it's Sahara Desert the north of Canada you know the steppe of Russia it's a good chance you wouldn't find evidence of life on earth if you were just digging in the one spot so I'd, I'd, I'd err on the side of no I'd say probably let's give it a 1585 1585 <clears throat> um, and in the last two uh, one we've already talked about the Olympic boycott in 2022 if you just want to put a number to that um, just as a reminder, we put or we gave it a 23% chance of a, of a boycott of most of the five eyes or the quad. Um, yeah, what do you think for that one? So it would be at least four of I, I get, the, yeah, four of the, yeah. the seven. So four of the five eyes. For, for the US to pull out itself, I'd give it a 
no, I don't. The Republicans might win. So let's 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 be safe and let's give it a twenty-five. Let's give it a twenty percent chance. For all of the five eyes to pull out, I'd give it a five percent chance. You know, there are even if the US pulls out, there's no guarantee that you know New Zealand or the UK will pull out as well. Perfect. And then the last one is uh, this is a question that we also forecasted. It's about what are the odds that uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize diplomatic ties by 2025? Um, you know, we've seen some talks seeming like you know they're teasing at it, but you know, obviously situation might have to change in Palestine. What do you think about, about that question? It's much more likely than you think it is um, than it, most people will probably like, likely think it is. Effectively, the way the Middle East is shaping up is, is it's, it's a four-pole world. So there's a pole in Ankara. So Turkey is actually much more powerful now than they have been for a long time. There's a pole in Tehran. Uh, obviously, the Iranians are, you know, have huge influence in the Middle East. Uh, there's a pole in, uh, effectively... Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, and there's a poll in Israel. Now, the Saudi and Israel polls both rely on the US. So they're actually far more you know, beneficial for them to be working together because both of them really don't like Tehran or Ankara, uh, both for completely different reasons. The idea behind normalizing relations is the fact that they can do joint operations together, they can share and tell. And effectively, if you speak to anyone high up in the Saudi government or the Israeli government, they are already in coordination with each other. Um, the fact that you can fly US bases between one and the other is indication that, yeah, they're already kind of talking with each other and it's fine. This is mostly for domestic politics. The, what will happen is this is a huge, you know, this is a huge thing for it to happen. So they'll make sure they give it to what they view, you know, they want to make sure the timing's right. So Israel will want to do it when, Is he frozen for you as well, Andrew? Yeah, the last question. Oh, no. A little snippy, snippy. Hello? Oh, you're back. Hello. Yep, perfect. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yes. So where, where, where'd you get up to? Yeah, where'd you, where'd you get up to? I think you're talking about um, Saudi Arabia and Israel flying between bases. Uh, like yeah. The, yeah, between U.S. bases, yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, Saudi Arabia and Israel obviously do have some coordination already. They can fly between bases. Um, you know, the if you speak to upper members of the Saudi administration or upper members of the Israeli administration, they already do coordinate with each other. Uh, but both, but both sides will want this momentous occasion to happen at the right time. So, you will likely find that Israel will want to do it under a Republican president because it will likely help a Republican president gain another Republican presidency. Um, and they do far better under Republican presidents. Uh, they, give, they get far more aid under Republicans than they do Democrats. Um, the Saudis will want the same as the Republicans give much more aid and support to the Saudis uh, than the Democrats do. Um, so yeah, it, they will likely wait for a time when there will be a Republican in the White House to do it. Um, but again, it's it's only in name as it is. You know, both sides work on anti-Iran operations. Both sides work on counter-intel operations against Turkey. Both sides effectively coordinate their militaries and intelligence. Both sides share stuff. Both sides work with the US. Both sides have US bases. You know, uh, effectively, they have been working together. And, uh, you know, when the US, they have these Israeli breakthroughs with Morocco and Sudan and UAE, 
they've been working together for years. It's not a huge breakthrough. It's just a, you know, it's a dressing show of, oh, look, we officially have a route where you don't have to fly through Qatar anymore to get to us. Um, it's window dressing, it, it, you know, effectively, as much as the people may still have beef with each other and as much as, you know, low level uh, operations may still be against each other, the high end, so kings and prime ministers and presidents of these countries will still, you know, they coordinate all the time time uh, and frankly it's a huge card to play to end this conflict why waste it save it for a moment you need it which will be when a republican's running for re-election or you know when uh when a you know maybe the king is embattled in saudi arabia so when they maybe lost the yemen war uh or yeah, israeli politics is it may be an appeasement of the left in the israeli uh, knesset if I were to give it a number, I'd say before 2020, what was it? Before 2025? 2025, um, correct. 30, yeah, 30, 70. And do you think that they would, like, let's say Biden were to win an another term, would they wait mm -hmm. until 2028 to, to do normalization? Because you were sort of thinking about it a lot from the government and the military side of, of, of benefits, but thinking about sort of the private mm. sector side of things and, um, and, and, and the tech and investment side of things. Um, it would seem like waiting for all that period of time just to get the right moment might, after a while, sort of be too much, right? Like if, if Biden were to win re-election and the Republicans weren't to reclaim the White mm. House by then. Um, just wondering your thoughts well, on that. Well, that's the thing. They can, yeah. they, can do everything but, they can do everything but official normalization. So you'll find that already there, you know, the companies in Saudi Arabia can operate in Israel and banks can operate between themselves. Already there is more tech going between the two. Effectively, they can do everything except official recognition. Uh, and that's because they're waving that card. You know, effectively, things won't change very much. It's the, it's the same reason that, you know, uh, you know, my like i just got engaged to my fiance and everyone's like oh what's changed i'm like the official Congratulations, you know yeah. thank you um but what's changed nothing really because effectively we've been living together for years we've dated for many many years we've you know it's a it's a change in title but how the bills operate in the house and how we communicate and, and operate as a couple has not really changed it's a and formality yeah. it's, a, it's a formality um business banks sector intelligence all the, those guys are still already operating between uh, Jerusalem and and, uh, and Riyadh. So why play the card unless you really have to? You only get to play it once. Great. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much uh, for coming on to the podcast, especially on such short notice. We really, really appreciate it. And also for being super generous with your time. We know you're an incredibly busy person. Um, are there any socials or things you want to plug anything coming up with the Redline podcast that you want our viewers to know about um so they can stay informed so you can find us on on most of your social media uh on uh you know at the Redline pod that's for facebook and instagram and twitter and all that kind of stuff you can find us on discord as well uh we're on uh, reddit we're on swell we're on every uh, we've got our website which is www.theredlinepodcast.com uh, and you can stay up to date with you know what pieces we have coming up there as well as getting contact with uh, with us here at the show but always willing to chat and uh, really really enjoyed this chat with you guys all right and that was the 12th episode of the global guessing weekly podcast thanks everyone thanks so much